0: Penny University, a podcast with value. Penny University presents 2019 Our Investigation, Our Truth. What happened to the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshots?
1: A mother determined and almost broken, fulfilling a promise to her son lost. A friend lost in contradictions between the crew he knows and the crew that was distorted. What happened in Yarnell, Arizona at the end of June 2013? Mm-hmm. Episode 7, The Granite Mountain Hotshots.
2: Hi, and welcome to Episode 7 of Penny University's new series, Our Investigation, Our Truth. My name is Deborah Fingston, and my son Andrew Ashcraft was on the Granite Mountain Hotshots. Um, he was lead Sawyer.
0: My name is Doug Harwood, and I worked on Granite Mountain. I'm a Prescott firefighter, and I had lots of friends on that crew.
2: And we have a special guest sitting with us, um, Darrell Willis. Daryl, you want to introduce yourself?
3: Yeah, I'm Darrell Willis, and I was the direct supervisor of the Granite Mountain Hotshots uh, uh, during the time that uh, we lost them.
2: Yeah, um, and another thing I want to bring up, you know, thank you so much for all your thoughts and prayers. You guys have really been supportive for us. Your comments um, keep us going. They help us know that we're doing the right thing, because sometimes we struggle with that. And um, if any of you guys have any specific questions or if you want more information, email us and we will get back to you. We'll answer your questions honestly. Um, and you can also continue just to send us your hellos. We really like it. Please email us at protonmail.com.
0: This has been an emotional experience for us and sometimes our emotions and words might not be appropriate for little ears. So as always, please be aware of that when listening. And we've also covered uh, June 28th, 29th, and 30th, up until the crew died. And in the last two episodes, we also shared some of the things we've discovered. And um, we won't be going back over that unless we need to for something in this episode. So if you want to hear about those, please review those episodes, um, one through six. We're certainly going to refer to some of that information, but it won't be covered in great detail.
2: Um, So we're just going to dive into this episode. This episode is The... Of Granite Mountain Hotshots. We're going to talk about when they started, why they started. We're going to kind of follow a linear timeline, and we will share a written history about um, Granite Mountain on the podcast. And I will tell you right now if you watched the movie Only the Brave, please remember that that movie was loosely based on truth. And the stories shared happened, but some of them were over years. They happened to different crew members. Um, not the crew that we're talking about, some of them did, um but not all of them um Doug, do you have a quick thought about only the brave
0: um it It seemed to me like it was a good if nobody knew the crew, it was a good firefighting movie, a good movie about firefighters but uh, if you knew that crew it uh it wasn't their story, and it wasn't um it wasn't about those guys
2: right well you know, it's not one of my favorite films, I will say that. Um, I had two fantastic shots. I loved the beginning shot with a helicopter over the swimming pool where you were looking down on the rotor, and I thought, wow, that is fantastic. Um, And I liked another shot where Josh Brolin was standing there, and just the color of it with the trees behind him and the clouds billowing. I thought that was amazing. There were a couple of scenes I couldn't stand with a passion, and one of those where it talked about how they got their certification and it just seemed like it, it was one fire. This one guy went out on and, you know, all of a sudden they got, they got to become this type one crew and that's not true.
0: Yeah, one, so, one day they didn't have it, the next day they did kind of thing. Yeah, you know, well. All the work that was put in wasn't
2: wasn't in there. Was wasn't in there. None of their certifications, none of all of the work that they did. And I, I just thought it was kind of a little bit demeaning. You know, one guy standing there, I always tease people. I'll say, yep, he was standing there. He's like, you know, spitting. Oh, yep, that's not how I'd do it, but, you know, here we go. And I, I just thought that was, I just despised that. And I also didn't really like how they um, went into how the families were at the, at the school you know, wailing away, and who was who was it? That, that was just so untrue. So I, there were some things I really didn't like about it. But um, I try my best to try and be positive. And I'll tell you, one positive thing that came out is the young man that portrayed Andrew. His name was Alex Russell, and um, him and I still talk. Uh, he was a, a wonderful young man, and um, I'm, gl- I'm glad I got to know him. But that's enough about that film. Let's find out about the truth of Granite Mountain and who they were and why they existed. So basically, um, Chief, you wanted Prescott to be prepared for a wildland program, for a wildfire. You wanted the city to be um, ready if something happened.
3: Yeah, I, I think that was that was the vision. We had to be prepared. And at that time, being the chief, we, I just felt that We had to do more than just be the responders. We had to take a proactive uh, approach to it. And, uh, you know, one of the things that happened in the year 2000 was that was a really significant Western wildfire year. A lot of large fires, even in Arizona, New Mexico, all across the Western United States. And Congress came up with a... uh, what they called the National Fire Plan. And that gave a lot, uh, grant money to state and local governments to start working on this problem of the wildland-urban interface. And so that's one of the things that, that we saw at that point. Okay, there's some money there. The catch was you had to get the work done. And so we took a chance that we were gonna hire some folks we knew that we had the, uh, the the justification for it, and we hired a few folks to uh, start helping the community. And that was, that's one of the big problems in these interface communities is, uh, is the, it's very arduous work. It's tough to go out there and cut brush all day. It's hard on people. Most citizens can't do it. They need some and, help. And
2: Prescott's a retirement community. Right. Um, you know, that's not gonna happen.
0: And shipping, right? it's,
3: it's no fun either. No, the shipping <laughs> <it's> is <laughs> terrible all day long, you know? And uh, so um, that's when we kind of got started with a, with a few part-time people and started making some progress in 2001.
2: Well, I know it says that in, um, that this fuel management crew built defensible space around 392 homes. Yeah. That's, that's amazing, that's a lot. Um, but what I really loved is what's shared in this history, which you wrote, by the way, yeah. which thank you for writing it. I love it, um, is that this crew was fully grant-funded with no cost to the city of Prescott. Correct. Zero cost.
1: Right.
3: There was there was some grant matching, some percentages and stuff like that, but but it wasn't actually... I mean the city applies for grants and they put money aside for grants every year and stuff like that so it was really negligible to the general fund any kind of money that went towards this I mean we were able to buy chippers chainsaws all the protective equipment pickups things like that with this grant money that resources that the city there's no way that they could get
2: so another wildland urban community can have this, they can do this, Right. it's possible.
3: There, there are still these grants, uh, state fire assistance and hazardous fuels grants that are still coming down from the federal go- government through the state governments. There's still a lot of that. It's pretty competitive now, mm-hmm. but the, the, uh, the real catch on the whole deal is you've got to produce the work and you've got to be able to document it. You can't just take grant money Say you're going to do something,
2: and then not. They do hold you to it. So at this time, the city of Prescott was really amazingly proactive.
3: Amazingly proactive, and we talk about it a little later. But I can throw it in right now. The National Fire Protection Association uh, came in and did an evaluation of our program, what we're doing, because they are heavily involved in wildland-urban interface problem. They've got a whole division set aside. This is the National Fire Protection Association. Covers municipal, fire departments, fire districts, all the way across the United States. And uh, they, they rated us as the gold standard.
2: Okay, so I don't want to go over that too quickly. The Granite Mountain um, Hot Shots, this Crew 7, mm-hmm. at which turned into Granite Mountain, they were the gold standard Of what we should be striving for in the nation.
3: Absolutely.
0: I think also it's the like 392 homes they did. I remember when I worked, they would would be lined up. Right. So you're connecting some fuel breaks more than just a single home here, a home there. You know, it was kind of a...
2: That's right. This is, is this when you were on the crew? No, or? I was later, but um,
0: uh-huh. it was the same.
3: It was leverage. We leveraged that out, and we wouldn't just go into, like... So Prescott's a, a large community of about 40,000 now, but most of the housing tracks have four to 500 homes, and they're different areas. And uh, we would leverage in certain areas. We wouldn't just go in and do one home in the middle of the subdivision and then go to another subdivision. We'd want to get a group and preferably on the perimeter of that Mm -hmm. subdivision so that, you know, if a fire was coming through, we we were able to draw a line in the sand for the fire.
2: So, Doug, you, when you were on the crew, so you worked in a lot of these communities in Prescott. So when you drive around Prescott, I know... Um, my husband, Jerry's an electrician, so we'll drive around Prescott and he'll say, I remember wiring that, or I did that. So do yeah. you still do that when you drive around Prescott? Oh yeah, all
0: the time. And I look back and see, you know, six foot brush where we, <laughs> where it used to be nothing <laughs> when we were done with it. You know, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been kept up since.
3: Right. That's the value of having, uh, inter-department members and, uh, having this crew was they would be very familiar with the area. Um, and know what's been cut, and we'd we'd be able to document what's been cut, what's been treated, what we haven't treated, where are our weak points, where are our mm-hmm. strong points, where can we, and this is just a term that's used, where can we run a fire into by moving it into a direction or moving it away from something? If you, you move it into a place that's been treated, it's going to slow down. If you move it into a place that hasn't been, it's, it's going, going to, to take, take off. off.
2: Well, I know, again, it says later <clears throat> on that in 2003, you guys removed 10,000 beetle-killed ponderosa pines at a fee of $55 per tree. Let me think about that a minute. 10,000 trees at $55 in 2003. Mm-hmm. That that covers a lot. Yeah.
0: So...
3: it. Um, it does, and that was uh, one of those uh, bark beetle outbreaks that came through Prescott, and you could just look across the forest and across Prescott and see nothing but brown pine trees. And they were, they were basically uh, a fire hazard and a life safety hazard because at some point in time they're going to fall down. But when they're turning brown, their needles are uh, dead and they're just very volatile. So we worked with a uh, logging contractor, mm-hmm. and uh, the crew would cut the trees, and we would tell the logging contractor where to pick them up, and they'd get rid of them.
2: So when did the crew, Crew 7, officially become a Type 2 crew? In uh,
3: 2004 is uh, when we were working with a city manager and the city council, and uh, you know we had pretty much proven that the work they were doing was very productive. Any time they went out and they did work for people, they were commenting back positive, one of the most positive programs the city of Prescott had going at that time. And so uh, uh, in 2004, we established Crew-7 and because the uh, our engines and our units in the city of Prescott, had a 7 designation. Surrounding fire departments all have another designation, but Prescott was 7, so we decided to to uh, label them Crew 7.
2: And at this time, Eric Marsh was just a crew member.
3: Yes. Right? Mm-hmm.
2: So I think
3: he was hired uh, that year, mm-hmm. and he was a crew member. He had had a lot of experience working on hotshot crews and had a lot of qualifications and stuff. But uh, at that point in time, he was a crew member uh, working with the crew. One of the, one of the things that uh, felt that was real important at that point in time, and just prior to that, there was a, a gentleman for the Forest Service that was getting ready to retire. He wasn't old enough to really retire and stop working. So we recruited him. And he came over, and he brought his Forest Service experience of, uh, he had worked a lot of crews, worth a lot of crews, and, and had that crew experience. And he had the vegetation management experience. Mm-hmm. So we hired him, and he came in, and he helped us establish the crew.
2: And this gentleman was with um, the crew up until we lost them. That's
3: correct. That's correct. He worked uh, with us. I think it was 2003 we hired him and then uh, he came in and uh, really gave us some good leadership. Here's what we need to do and uh, he was a qualified operations section chief. He was a safety officer and he was really all about knowing vegetation and knowing crew work.
2: Okay well let's get started and let's dive in. So Daryl, Tell us how in the heck did Granite Mountain even get going?
3: Well, it was uh, quite an evolution and uh, it took quite a bit of time. Uh, So the Hotshot crew didn't just magically appear one day. It took a lot of years. So in 1990, uh, there were a number of us in the area, one with the Forest Service, with the Prescott Fire Department, State Land Department, Yavapai County, really saw that there was potential for a large wildland fire in the Prescott area and we wanted to get together and figure out how we could be more prepared for that in uh, doing that they put on a, uh, a little seminar in 1990 and uh, it was actually in March of 1990 and in that seminar we laid out the problem here's what the problem is there's a lot of houses intermixed the forest, we've got 30 lineal miles of forest boundary on the city of Prescott. There's good potential for a fire to come in, into Prescott. How can we be more prepared? So that's when the establishment of the Prescott Area Wildland Urban Interface Commission uh, began in 1990. And along with that, I think it's it's really important to note you had all the government agencies, including the Forest Service, City of Prescott, the county, the state, and uh, were all involved in this, and they all signed a resolution that we need to deal with this. And this commission, which we refer to as Powick, was established, and they started getting uh, uh, on, the, uh, uh, on the bandwagon of educating people getting people in, in the community involved, and stuff like that, and that was 1990. If you'll remember back to 1990, it was a very historic year. And in 1990, on June 28th, the Dude Fire occurred, and six firefighters were killed near Payson in 1990, the same year that Prescott started the Prescott area, Wildland in Urban So that added emphasis to the problem in the Prescott area.
2: Well, I know um, in the history you talk about, too, that um, you wanted to practice evacuation drills because Mm -hmm. things were happening. Does that still happen today?
3: Yes, it did, and I think with Pawick and working together, the interagency cooperation, really had uh, a network at that point in time. So, like, they were doing certain, uh, some cooperation, but I think after 1990 and 1991, That's when the cooperation really happened. We established that we were going to have an annual drill. We were going to communicate. I mean, if you look back in the the 1980s, the hose couplings from a Forest Service fire truck to a Prescott fire truck, they didn't adapt. We -hmm. couldn't hook up our hoses to their truck or their hoses to our truck. Mm -hmm. That stuff was all worked out during that 1990, 80, from 85 to 1990 and in, through the 90s. So we got to know each other real well at that right.
2: point. And so um, you brought up the dude fire. Mm-hmm. And so the community is kind of reeling from the loss of, of these um, crew members. And so people started looking at wild fire fires seriously.
3: Yeah, it's been my experience that it takes a disaster for people to really recognize it. It it always happens in somebody else's backyard, and even though Payson's not our backyard, it's close enough for our residents and our uh, emergency response organizations to realize, man, we've got a problem here.
2: Right, so Payson, for those of you that don't know, it's how far from Prescott do you guys
3: uh, couple hours. It's a, yeah, couple it's a couple hours. Couple hour drive. Drive. Yeah, it's a couple-hour drive. It's probably 60 air miles, something like yeah. that. So it's there. close right enough in the,
2: Arizona to understand.
0: Yeah, right below the muggy on rim. Okay. So in uh, 2001, it says you, you asked the city council for permission to hire an outside consultant. Is that?
3: Yeah, that's... So when we kind of looked at things and I was I was at this point in time, the fire chief in Prescott and I, was, look, I really had an interest in this wildfire problem that we had. And I knew it wasn't a matter of uh, if it was gonna happen, it was when it was gonna happen. And it's like, I kept talking to folks, but it didn't really, on the city council, really didn't get any traction. So I asked for some money uh, to bring in an outside consultant and for them to do a wildfire risk analysis. Totally unbiased from outside. And in 2001, they authorized that. And so we had a an outside consultant that did this kind of work. And he came in and did a comprehensive risk analysis uh, for the just the city of Prescott. But he had to look at other areas because we are affected, Prescott is affected by other areas.
2: Well, and I think it's interesting, in, in the analysis it says that Prescott was living on the edge.
3: Yeah, that's a comment that was, it was uh, made there that we were living on the edge and Prescott was one of nine communities in the southwestern United States, that's Arizona and New Mexico, that uh, was at risk for a catastrophic wildfire. And when you when you think about that, so what are the other cities? Where, what are we being compared with? Well, it's the Payson's and the Flagstaff's and Rio Doso, New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico, places like that mm-hmm. that are heavily vegetative, whether it's brush or trees or, you know, what it's... We're not talking about the valley areas. We're talking about areas that have significant potential. And so what this... Uh, this... Uh, analysis did was it brought to the city council a an awareness uh the the company that did this said hey you've got a problem here's a solution and that solution was to divide the city up into vegetation management areas and you need to work on this vegetation management around homes around infrastructure and all of that and additionally uh he recommended that we establish a wildland division, have a put together a wildland fire crew, and uh, that it could, that crew could conduct defis, uh, defensible space, but also be able to respond
0: to wildfires.
2: And so that, yes. that was recommended from this analysis.
0: Wow. Yeah. And I, I guess um, just to clear something up, you were saying they were looking at other stuff besides the city. Were they looking at the other communities just outside the city limits, too, or, or is that not a, not a factor in this?
3: Well, it, it was to a point, Doug, in that uh, he did some fire modeling, and basically his concern was that you had a forest boundary around the southern portion of Prescott. And if you had a start on the forest, it's going to come into Prescott because we have prevailing southwest winds. So they did some modeling with... Uh, uh, some programs, some computer programs, and would start a fire like uh, southwest of us in Skull Valley. And how long would it take for a fire to start in Skull Valley and reach the city of Prescott? Or uh, they did one. They started one in uh, Wilhoyth and then I remember them starting one near in between Crown King and uh, also Prescott in uh, in the tall timber and just modeling that, and that helped show the real risk that the city of Prescott has. Yeah, how far it could grow in that
1: yeah. few miles, yeah. You know, we're
3: talking on a on a mid-June day, they would run the model, because that's when our highest fire danger is, and they would start a fire in, uh, in uh, Skull Valley, and it would reach Prescott in 10 hours.
2: And for those listeners that don't know, we have an interesting topography here in Prescott. We have we're high desert, but we have tall pine on one side, we have scrub oaks on other, we have desert on some. I mean, we're just a really odd mix, and so they had to look at quite a few things.
3: Yeah, different vegetation types. I mean, our most significant problem uh, that surrounds us is the continuous chaparral. that's there that, I mean, you know, from Skull Valley, Wilhoite, all the way around. And then on the other hand, then you have the uh, large ponderosa pine with the shrub or Mm -hmm. chaparral under, understory. And a lot of the there's some huge canyons that, that run pretty much south to north all along that whole mountain range. And it runs right to the top and into Prescott.
2: And yeah. when this was done in 2001, the population was not like it is now. I mean, now we have houses everywhere. Yeah. You know, we have community everywhere.
0: Right.
2: Um, I've lived in Prescott for 30 years and it has grown huge. Mm-hmm. Well, here we're starting to find out more. There are tons of podcasts out there. You have options. Penny University is truly a podcast with value and we strive to share great true stories. Some are plain fun. Some might bring a tear to your eye and maybe even make you a little angry. Listen to them all. Please listen, like, and share. Head over to our Facebook page, see who we are. And thanks for listening.
1: You are listening to Penny University, a podcast with value. We hope you find this series captivating. If you would like to share your two cents, please contact either Deborah or Doug at Penny University at ProtonMail.com. Thank you. And now back to our podcast.
2: You will notice that the next section sounds a little different. Well, during the editing process, we had a mishap. We're not professionals. We're just trying our best. But Doug and I wanted this information to be shared with you. It's very important. And so what we did is we called Chief Willis and Doug and I talked with him over the phone. Please be patient as you listen through and hope you enjoy the information. We'll get back to our original recording in the living room. Okay, um, thank you for, and welcome back from the break. Thank you for listening. And here we go.
0: So Chief, basically when you, when the, Type 2 crew started, you had a lot of overhead at that time that you guys had hired or, or had within the department, correct? Yeah, that's
4: that's correct. Uh, you know, there were a number of individuals that had significant uh, wildland qualifications, strike team leader, draft force leader, of course all of the firefighter one, crew bosses, division supervisors, whether that was even internal or Uh, Whether we hired uh, folks, uh, we hired uh, one gentleman in particular from the Forest Service that uh, was an ops chief. So uh, we had lots of uh, qualifications.
0: Yeah, it seemed to me like I started working on the crew about then, and it seemed like it was a hotshot crew almost from the beginning, qualification-wise. You know, that's that's true, Doug, and one of
4: the things that that's one of the – reasons we went that direction it, it was like when they got to the type 2 ia status it was like well what is missing to become a hot shot crew there wasn't a lot at that point in time that was missing right
2: so um, at that time 100 percent of the cost of crew 7 was reimbursed to prescott how does that work uh chief payment money when you're a crew like that
4: So when you're on fire assignments and you're not a agency as a federal agency crew, so we had determined what our costs were and we had a a schedule that if they went on a fire, that salary, overhead, equipment schedule paid Uh, the feds or whoever we were responding to would pay and that that uh, We used a standard, and that standard, there's a national type 2, type two IA contract, and we were always right, hovering around or below what the national contract price was. And we were always able to make enough money to, to uh, pay 100% of, of all of our expenses and then put a little aside for equipment.
0: It seems like I've heard, uh, and I know this isn't the case, but I've heard people say that the, the crew wasn't um, paying for itself all the time.
4: Yeah, you know, and, and what that really comes down to, it's an accounting issue. Uh, the people that say that the crew wasn't paying for itself were, were people in the finance division and stuff, and, and the reason that was is uh, the fiscal budget, was a uh from june 1st till uh from july 1st to june 30th and then we would go on fires and like say in May, may or april and it would take three about three months three to six months to get reimbursed from that well when the city closed their books in july then uh that showed that they had a deficit, but if they took it in a in a 12-month period, it was never a time that we did not uh, bring or make a profit when that crew was off on wildfires.
2: So they're talking about prior to the bill being paid is when it looked like they didn't make money, but then once they, they submitted the bills and they were paid, they did make money.
4: Yeah, and they okay. didn't even look they didn't even look at it like that it's like here's your cost and you haven't been paid so we lost money well that wasn't true we never were not ever paid at any one time it's it's an it's about how accountants account for money and it's about a calendar year versus a fiscal year and how that all works
2: that's kind of sad really Because anybody else that's looking at it, you know, gets that concern when there wasn't, when that concern really doesn't exist.
4: Right. But I think uh, in the end, uh, after 2013, when we were looking at trying to, or even in 2013, before Yarnell, there was a lot of uh, scrutiny. There was a lot of rumors and things like that. But those rumors that we were losing money and stuff were disproved numerous times, and uh, we were moving ahead uh, even uh, with those kind of innuendos and rumors, and it was basically from the city. Right. That,
2: uh, yeah. Well, that year, uh, they fought 11 wildfires in the Prescott Basin alone.
4: Right. You know, that was a. Uh, Pretty significant year, and you you figure eleven wildfires in Prescott, the Prescott Basin, and so that would mean in uh, the uh, Central Yavapais area, or Groom Creeks, or Forest, or BLM, that could be all that. So that was before, uh, you know, uh, that was in uh, before the end of June.
2: Right. Well, um, between the years 2005 and 2008, the numbers that I have here are pretty crazy. 619 homes treated, 385 trees removed. um, That was 383 ton. 593 acres treated, 675 plan reviews, 2,586 additional homes assessed, 626 building plans reviewed, 10,875 tons of materials taken to the city's transfer station. Um, And on top of that, Crew 7 went out for a total of 129 days on fire assignments.
4: Yeah, they never uh, sat around. And I would challenge pretty much any program in the nation to to come up with the kind of productivity that Granite Mountain has. So they went on fires, and we know that they were gone basically a third of the year. So they were gone a third of the year. And so they had two-thirds of the year left. And uh, basically, they were producing fuels treatment every day that they were back. They weren't just uh, a six-month and out crew. So they worked year-round.
2: And that is what I believe the way crews should be. Uh, you know, a lot of these catastrophic wildfires, wildfires that we have now—if they had fuel reduction, who knows what would happen? And
0: it's just amazing the amount of work that a 20-person crew can get done. Oh yeah, if they're well run, it's just—I was always amazed how quickly and well they did the work. Well,
2: I don't know how many times, Doug, you have said repeatedly this was a fast, good, hard-working crew. You know that, and and you know that needs to be out there known. So um, in 2007, that's when they became Granite Mountain. How did, you know, what, you receive approvals or, you know, um, that goes, how does that work? Do they look at trainings? You know, what do they look for?
4: So there's a lot of different aspects. The first was was a, we wrote a letter, excuse me, I wrote a letter to the Southwest Coordinating Group and asking them, if the granite mountain uh granite mountain crew could could become a trainee crew a trainee hotshot crew and there are criteria for a trainee crew to go through similar to what there is in task books and stuff there are specific
3: items <clears throat> from crew cohesion to uh the
4: equipment the radios their uh, training aspect and all of that that goes into this and they had to be evaluated by three different hotshot superintendents And I this is the part that I' I'm, I'm most proud of. The Southwest Coordinating Group, since there had been no other crew go through this process, uh, chose three of the best and most uh, difficult, hotshot superintendents from the southwest and they went on uh, three 14-day assignments with Granite Mountain making suggestions either passing or failing them on the thing the criteria that they had and in the end they got a full recommendation by these
2: three different federal hotshot crew superintendents so Doug, you were with the crew at this time. How did you, how did Eric tell the crew that okay, we are no longer, you know, crew seven. We're now this type one crew. How did they?
0: Well, I think this was also it was just a lucky luck of the draw thing. I happened to be on this that role when they got the news that they were now a a type one crew. Um, I was just filling with them at that time during that during that fire, and it was you know Eric pulled everyone together. He made it sound like he was going to chew our ass for some mistake we made that day. We were all you know, not looking forward to whatever the speech was going to be about. And then he walked over and scraped the scraped the tea right off the side of the truck, the training off the side of the truck. It was pretty awesome. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> and then he walked away. Yeah. I think that is so sweet. That is so awesome.
2: Well, um and so now we're Granite Mountain. Chief, um could you tell me about the evaluators? that be, you know, watch them?
3: Right, so they were uh, three very experienced, very well-respected hotshot superintendents, and I believe that was by design, and the design was to make it the toughest evaluation that they possibly could, so that the Granite Mountain Hotshots being this new entity that wasn't a federal... uh, Hotshot crew that they were going to earn it. If they actually went through it, then they earned it. So those three were, were very well-respected uh, superintendents with years of experience and uh, are, are still in the business today. Uh, and uh, they, uh, they didn't skate on anything. I mean, it, it could be equipment, it could be their leadership, their cohesion, uh, they evaluated every part of them, and they were they slept on the ground with them. Uh, they saw them get them up in the morning, in the chow line, building fire line, cutting trees, cutting brush, digging line, firing operations. Everything was evaluated. That's
2: awesome, and this and this group did it. Yep. Um, so, at Granite Mountain, um, the crew in two thousand and eight. They basically joined the ranks of the that elite wildland firefighting community. Mm-hmm. Um, there they go. So um, we're heading out towards 2009. What's going on in 2009?
3: Well, 2009 uh, continued the work. Uh, the uh, The 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 work really was at home where there. Uh, the in fact we talked about it being the bread and butter that's why they existed was about the the defensible space and their their production in the off fire season was uh unbelievable the amount of stuff that they did they uh they continued uh to uh do all of the things that were necessary assessments the uh the vegetation management, that we even got into some acreage treatment where we were doing some prescribed fire around the the uh, Prescott Basin and stuff like that. And that continued 2008, 2009. Uh, that kind of work continued. They were still getting close to 100 days on wildfires in the, in the summer season. And, uh, you know, I had even... One of the things that just comes to mind was... I had a pretty good relationship with a lot of the Forest Service personnel and leadership in the Forest Service, and they were really intrigued by Granite Mountain, uh, intrigued in the way that they could, wow, they could, with our extending fire seasons, we didn't have any limits on the, on the, when we had to lay people off and stuff like that, so we could extend our season and even be available year-round, which fire seasons become. And so they were really intrigued by that idea. And the other idea that they were intrigued with was not that hotshot crews don't do fuels mitigation. They do a lot of fuels mitigation. But they're there for firefighting. That's their main focus. And uh, so... uh, They like the idea that you could keep the skills up year-round with a number of people. That's one of the intriguing things. It's a cost factor with the federal government and being able to fund those crews year-round like we were able to.
2: Well, you got two 100% grants in 2010, Uh and that's 100%. That's amazing.
3: Yeah, and I want to emphasize the fact that... uh, you know, there's been some discussion one way or the, the other about the cost and all that. And, uh, you know, at worst, Granite Mountain was neutral, revenue neutral. At the best, we made about 10 to 15% per year and put that aside for equipment and truck replacement and well, things like that.
2: I'm gl- I'm glad you brought that up, Chief, because I remember when we, right after we lost the crew, that there were some in the city <clears throat> claiming that Granite Mountain cost them money mm-hmm. and they were always in the red and that type of stuff. And that was pretty negative when it wasn't factual.
3: Right. And uh, I think one of the things with that is uh, the reason they could say that was it was an accounting issue. The city budget went from July 1st to June 30th. And we would be fighting fire in May and June. And so those bills weren't processed through the federal government until into the next fiscal year. And so that's how they can say that they were in the red. But in reality, if if you took it over a year's period of time, we were never in the red. So Say it's, that again. it's kind of they
2: were never they
3: were never in, in the, the red. We, uh, you know, I'm not an accountant, uh, and I've been accused of using firefighter math and stuff like that. But our figures and the accountant's figures were different, based on a calendar, not based on the bottom line. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh. It's crazy.
2: Um. Yeah, it is. It's frustrating and crazy at the same time. Um, another thing I want to bring up is, again, this is this is at the same time that the National Fire Protection Association deemed that gold standard that we referred to earlier. Right. Um, and, you know, something that we talked about and Doug said, I think that's important to bring it up again. <laughs> they were the gold standard. That's not something to laugh at. That's not mm. something to... Take for granted this wasn't. They weren't fly by night. They, this is a crew that knew what they were doing.
3: And it was a total package. It wasn't just the Granite Mountain Hotshots and their firefighting. It was a total package. They did whatever was necessary. They weren't uh, structural firefighters in any way. In fact, only two of them had the qualifications or the experience to be entry-level firefighters for the city of Prescott. They didn't do that work. Uh, they did vegetation management. They did things like uh, 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 they might have done uh, hazardous reductions and sandbagging during emergencies and stuff like that, but they weren't structural firefighters.
0: I remember the last time I, I filled with them, none of them even had any interest in it. No. I mean they might have asked me questions about being a structured firefighter, but they loved what they were doing. They weren't.
2: Well, what do you mean here, Dick? When you filled with them, what what does that mean?
0: So um, sometimes when they didn't have enough people to to uh, go out on a fire, they could take people from the department that had the experience that wanted to go.
2: Okay, and so mm-hmm. you would go out um, with them and go step back into your wildland.
0: Yeah. Work yeah.
2: and they weren't interested in being structured firefighters. They were interested
0: in asking me questions about it, but nobody, it didn't seem like that was the path. They wanted to do wildlife, they wanted to be on mm. that crew. Right.
2: Well, with no insult to you, I remember Andrew one time telling me, You know, mom, when I'm old, I want to become a station slot. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so,
0: no when insult. Re- when it's time to retire. Yeah. <laughs> so, one of the things
3: that no agency or no program whether it's large or small, had treated the number of homes, the number of acres, the tons of vegetation, all of that that had been going on. And I think that's one of the reasons that the uh, NFPA said that we were the gold standard. It was It was a total package, it was a total program. It wasn't just focused on brush disposal or fire response, it was total package year round the public education, the speaking, the things that they did, the teaching at the Arizona Wildfire Academy—all of that stuff was a so total package. Granite
2: Mountain taught their crew members taught at a fire academy.
3: Yes, at the local Arizona Wildfire Academy. Uh, usually, seven to a thousand, seven hundred to a thousand students go. Eric and even Doug, others uh, taught the basic wildland fire class for. Pretty much the whole time during this, the, the that that they were in existence, we also taught the saw class, the uh, at the academy. So firefighters were coming from all over the nation to come to Prescott for this academy, and we had lead instructors throughout the whole academy.
2: So here we have a crew that's the gold standard, that doesn't cost the city money, that is helping the city out, that. Their crew members are instructors teaching other wildland firefighters. And I love this line that's in this history this fact, not a line, it's a fact that the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshots had been um, protecting the city with over $3.1 billion in assessed value, over 18,000 homes, and 24,000 residents. That's astronomical
3: that's what's at risk and those are 2012 numbers and so that's those homes businesses in the high risk areas of Prescott you know Prescott's 42 45,000 now well there we didn't just say the whole city of Prescott it was it was Refined to this is the high-risk areas. So that's where the 3.1 billion comes from. I'm sure it's higher now There's probably more than 18,000 homes oh, at I risk bet. now.
2: I bet. yeah.
3: And uh, uh, definitely more than 24,000 residents. So look at the uh, if we if we look back and there was a large fire in California that this uh, it, in Paradise, California last November happened. It pretty much devastated the community. We have more homes at risk in our high risk area than they lost in that whole community. And I think that's one of the things that people need to recognize is it's not unheard. It wouldn't be unheard of to have the right conditions for the community of Prescott to burn down.
2: Wow. And, and Prescott's not the only wildland-urban-interface community? No, no.
3: All over the western United States, from the Canadian border to the southern Arizona border. So
2: these wildland-urban-interface communities could have a crew like Granite Mountain, run it like Granite Mountain was run, have it not cost their community anything, and have their community protect it? Yes, Okay, so we are at 2013. Um, this is the Granite Mountain crew that um, we lost in Yarnell. We are now with these guys, and um, they were a pretty amazing crew just in their own right. Chief, what can you say about these guys?
3: Well, it's something that I I uh, refer to whenever I talk about them. 19 of the finest young men I've ever known in my life. They were the total package. I mean, they were experienced. They were great firefighters. They were great individuals. They're great family people. They were intertwined in our community and you just can't say anything more than they were 19 of the finest young men I'd ever met in my life.
2: Well, and these guys were made up of youth pastors. Um, like you said, family men, there were a couple single guys. They weren't all that mm-hmm. way, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, they weren't this, this party. I mean, some took their Bibles out on, on fires with them, that type of thing. So this was a unique crew in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, personality-wise, Doug, you worked out with them at CrossFit all the time. I mean, this was a a great group, but I know that they get picked on quite a bit for, well, maybe they didn't have enough training or, you know, and and Chief, you had a lot of that thrown at you. Mm -hmm. So what can you say about them?
3: Well, I, I can say that, number one, that they met the standards for a type one crew there was some question about that in the beginning they were scrutinized we were scrutinized everything had to be two investigations uh, an OSHA investigation and a serious accident investigation they looked at everything I mean if it wasn't written down it didn't happen so we had to produce the documentation so that was just really key uh, to to that and it said a lot about Eric's leadership, Uh, I, uh, I, you know, we had our ducks in a row, and that was, that was really, really good. You know, another thing, uh, you know, I've heard a little bit, uh, and this was early on about they weren't safe and all this and stuff, and, you know, I look back, we talked about 2012, and I got a call in 2012 when Granite Mountain was on a fire in Idaho, and Eric said, he was informing me that i'm not going to like what's coming and I go what's that and he says, "Well, we refused an assignment on a fire in Idaho, and we're being demoed for refusing that assignment and He explained it to me and he it was all documented and they did the right way the appropriate way involved the every the division the uh uh safety officer, the incident commander, and basically they were they were demoted for turning down an assignment. So that tells me right there, okay, that took a lot of guts to refuse an assignment that another hotshot crew took uh, and, and did that assignment. They just disagreed with it. So he had great judgment. And uh, so I think that's important to, uh, for people to realize that they were a safe crew. And uh, it was as shocking to me as to anybody that, something like this could have happened to them so the other thing is i come uh one of the when we were doing all this records uh searches and stuff like that we came up with the fact that the granite mountain hotshots on june 30th at that point in time had 102 years of experience so If you took the years of experience for each crew member, that totaled 102 years. It wasn't like they didn't know what they were doing. We had people from that. It was a very attractive job to come to work for Granite Mountain. We didn't have to recruit. There were people coming from the Payson hotshots, from the Prescott hotshots, from engines, Forest Service engines, that wanted to work. Well, Granite I Mountain.
2: remember um, Joe Wojak saying that uh, he, they investigated. They looked around when um, Kevin wanted to become a, a hot shot. They look, what crews are the best, right? And they picked uh, Granite Mountain. Uh, Roxanne Warnicky told me the same thing about Billy, and I know Andrew. That was you know he wanted to work for Granite Mountain. <clears throat> that was it. Mm-hmm. So, a hundred and two years of experience mm-hmm. that's nothing to shake a stick at
3: not at all I think uh it'd be it'd be interesting, and I don't know the facts about this, but uh I would say that they were up there with some of the most experienced crews, even though as far as longevity, they weren't uh, around as long, but the current roster manifest had. Uh, a lot of experienced folks.
2: Well, you know, Chief Willis, you said that you were kind of taken back that this happened to this crew because they were so gold standard. They taught at the academy. They had 102 years of experience. That this happened, and Doug, you've expressed that. You know, when we've gone out on gone, gone out to Yarnell, you just. Are so shocked that it's this crew. Yeah,
0: and I remember thinking the same thing. It was easy. The overhead on that crew was easy to. If someone met them, then they would want to work for them, mm-hmm. and that was just the way it was. I think anybody who met them wanted to work for them.
3: Right. I I, I can totally agree with you. And it wasn't that they they were all agreeable people, or, uh, you know, there were heated discussions about things. But I can, I can truly believe this, and one of the audios that we have is Eric talking to Jesse uh, uh, prior to them moving and uh, asking him what his comfort level was. And that's just one of those normal things that it was, okay, what's your comfort level with this? And if it wasn't good, people were able to express that, you know, they didn't feel comfortable with it. Yeah: So one of the things that I uh, really, really uh, am all about with, with the Granite Mountain hotshots, the Yarnell fire and everything like that, you know, everybody's got their opinion, and you really I, I respect everybody's opinion about what that is. But the part that I don't like is I think you have your right to your opinion. you don't have your right to your own facts. And people should do fact checks. And there's still a lot of facts that we don't know. That people have expressed opinions, and they don't have the facts, but they're just throwing it out there. Absolutely. So, I'm I'm concerned, or not concerned. I'm just uh, um, I don't I don't put much credibility in people's opinions. I want to see the facts.
2: Well, I fully support that. <laughs> <I> Agreed.
0: <laughs> Anything else, Chief? Uh, anything else you need to get off your chest? This, Deborah and I use this uh, this platform for. So, if there's anything else, well, I think that was
3: that. That's my uh, off my chest deal. Is right. Facts, birth of opinions.
2: Well, um, as we come to a close on this issue, I, um, on this episode, I just want to thank you, uh, Chief Willis. I still have you in my cell phone as chief. Um, <laughs> I want to thank you for coming and sharing the history, um, the truth, the, the, um, who this group was from the very beginning, um, and, and that everybody gets to know who they were. And um, I know that the crew looked up to you. I know Andrew looked up to you. Um, and I thank you very much for coming and sitting in my living room with Doug and I and sharing this experience with us.
3: Well, it's been an honor, and uh, I really have enjoyed these podcasts, and uh, I'm totally amazed at how well uh, you've done through <laughs> this whole situation. And, uh, of course, Doug, you guys you guys have some, some great audio out there for people to learn more about what happened in Yarnell.
2: Well, thank you. Thank Got Chief. anything, Doug?
1: Well, thank you, Chief. Thank you. Thank you, Chief. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to Penny University's presentation of our investigation, Our Truth. Please join us again for the next episode in this gripping series. We hope you find us a podcast with value. Until next episode, be strong, wise, and safe.